the humor writer Andy Borowitz recently wrote, there is a deep-seated fear among some Americans that an Ebola outbreak could make the country turn to science, which rivaled an Onion article titled, Experts Say Ebola Vaccine at Least 50 White People Away. So maybe starting off part two on this topic of Ebola with a focus on some science will be a good place to start today. Let's talk about Ebola and the immune system. Do you remember from immunology what dendritic cells are? Those are not to be confused with dendrites found on nerve cells. Dendritic cells come out of our bone marrow and search for viruses and bacteria, and they are antigen-presenting cells that help T-cells respond to foreign antigens. So dendritic cells are found in lymph nodes. They also circulate in the blood. And they are also present in some other areas of the body as well. These dendritic cells were first described by Paul Langerhans in the late 19th century, but the central role of dendritic cells in the adaptive immune response was described by a guy named Ralph Steinman in 1973, and he would receive the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 2011 for that work on the immune system. And by the way, the day the email arrived on his cell phone that he got the Nobel Prize award would have been very exciting for him. The problem was he had just died of a four-year battle with pancreatic cancer. But these dendritic cells are very important, and several studies have been showing that Ebola virus attacks these dendritic cells early. That's a bummer of a situation that hampers the immune response. It appears that one of the great determining factors as to whether or not you survive Ebola is whether your immune system eventually starts making antibodies against the virus. Therefore, the early attack on dendritic cells is like a country's radar and the entire computer system being wiped out before a full-scale invasion. Dendritic cells activate other cells in the immune system. We haven't talked about labs yet, and I want to say a few things about laboratory findings. First of all, others with experience treating Ebola say electrolyte abnormalities are very common and can be dramatic as the disease progresses. Much of those abnormalities are due to the massive diarrhea that often accompanies the disease. The amount of diarrhea can be similar to the quantity seen in cholera. So we're talking a whole lot here. And the vomiting that can also be massive definitely worsens electrolyte abnormalities as well. Laboratory findings can also include low white blood cell and platelet counts and elevated liver enzymes. When the liver disease is significant and coagulation factors are not made, it can affect clotting times in the associated labs and DIC definitely has the potential to occur in viruses causing hemorrhagic fevers, and therefore you can see the associated lab findings of disseminated intravascular coagulation. Now, the viral diagnosis of determining whether a patient has Ebola can be made the following ways at very specialized laboratories. There's the enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, which we call ELISA, there's the reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, which we call PCR assay. There are some other methods, such as antigen capture detection tests, serum neutralization tests, electron microscopy, or even virus isolation by cell culture. 
But here's the thing. It can take up to three days after symptoms appear for the virus to reach detectable levels. So you may need to retest a symptomatic patient with a worrisome story if their first test is negative, particularly if they're becoming more ill by the day. How do you send off that lab since few hospitals can test for it at the current moment in time? Which tubes and how do you package that specimen safely? The answer is call your state and local health departments. You really shouldn't even draw the test until you have talked with them. The test that is most commonly run is the PCR test. Now getting back to this specimen that is collected but potentially could be a false negative for about 72 hours, how do you decide what to do with the patient? I mean, can you discharge them home if they're looking really good? And the answer is yes. Actually, um, you can take a patient who's under investigation for Ebola, who's suddenly turning really healthy and fevers are going away and symptoms are non-existent and you may have found another reason for those fevers and you can discharge them from the hospital. Like everything in medicine, you have to use your clinical judgment. But in this situation, a person under investigation who truly had an exposure to Ebola, they need to, at a very minimum, self-monitor and be compliant with active monitoring and controlled movement. And then there has to be a really good plan in place for returning to medical care if for some reason symptoms were to restart or fevers were to restart. And obviously when it comes to this virus, you're telling your local and state health departments about what you are doing and they should concur with your plans and judgment. So that reminds me actually of a case I saw about a little over a week ago. I got a call from the ER doctor who explained that this patient came in and he doesn't totally quite buy the story, but she's having myalgias and fevers and nausea and vomiting and looks uncomfortable. And she told the ER doctor, after he asked about travel history and exposure to Ebola, that she had friends from Western Africa visit her. She couldn't name the country that they came from. And they stayed with her and they were acting sick. And then they went away back to Africa and she doesn't know any contact information. And so here we are stuck with this potentially very serious case, even though not everything is adding up. If you have not been involved with Ebola planning, which I assume most of you have not been, there has been a real run on supplies, particularly the A60 suits and other supplies to protect yourself from this virus. And I really don't want to start using these limited supplies, which can take weeks, if not months, now that every hospital is ordering them. And my biggest nightmare scenario for my hospital is that we run through the supplies on someone who doesn't have Ebola, and then we get the real thing and don't have the supplies. So I tell the ER doctor, nobody else go in that room, don't use any more supplies, I'm coming in. So I do the appropriate donning and end up spending over an hour in the room. And during that lengthy history and physical exam, it became clear to me that, yes, yeah, she is having all those symptoms, but she is going through opioid withdrawal. 
So what I really hadn't thought about much until that point and now seems obvious at a lot of different ERs and hospitals who have had similar experiences is that some patients are going to start saying yes to these Ebola screening questions because they want faster care or they might have personality disorders or mental health disorders. And to be honest, it worked. It was a really busy Friday night. We shut down two rooms in the ER, one for staging and one to have the patient in. And she became priority number one in our hospital, despite a lot of other people having much more severe illnesses at that moment in time. The whole process of the patient hitting triage, getting the appropriate isolation, moving patients from the adjacent room so we could have the equipment we needed right next door, having the ER docs here, then having me come in and do a very at length history and physical. That took about five, six hours to rule this patient out as a false positive by history and physical, but it is still important to do that. The path of least resistance to admit that patient, taking up two ICU rooms, one for the patient and then one for staging next door to the patient, which is what our plan calls for, that is a lot of resources, not to mention that we are going to have two to one as far as always having a nurse available for that patient and only for that patient, and then a helper who will be outside the room 24-7 for donning and doffing the gear appropriately. You know, there's a lot of social aspects to this disease, and so I was saying in the first podcast that in Africa, you know, they try and hide family members or patients try to hide their symptoms so they don't end up in the healthcare facilities there. There's even been reports of family members breaking into Ebola hospitals to pull their family members out. But the social issues in the United States can be very, very different. And this case shows that we are going to have patients in the United States that in order to fulfill their own needs quicker, will be answering these questions without truthfulness in order to become a priority. Having such a degree of entitlement can be dangerous because you are really keeping others from getting the care they need by slowing down processes in the ER and the hospital and potentially wasting very precious resources. Oh man, I've been going off on this tangent a bit too long. Okay, more than I wanted to. So I'll tell you what, we'll end it there and I'll have to come back with a part three on Ebola because there's definitely more to get to on this topic. So you've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Pratt. See you on the next round.